Before we meditate, I'm going to answer a couple of questions that came in. So we've thought of this time in the day as an opportunity to uh, to both answer questions, answer questions, and or uh, guided meditation. So this question has a few parts. What is an arahant? Is it a mythological ideal or is it something modern humans can attain? If it's possible, is it something you personally aspire to attain? If so, how long do you guess it might take? And what transformations do you suppose will be necessary for you between here and the other shore? And then there's a PS. I do know that being an Arahant is only possible in the present moment. I assume an Arahant, in quotes, is so for most moments. Um, Thank you for that question. And the word Arahant is a Pali word and um, it's used to refer to someone who has realized Nibbana another Pali word. <laughs> and the Buddha was pretty clear about what it is, said it in a number of ways, but some of those ways are that when one realizes Nibbana, so Nibbana was a common word that meant cooled or something like the, the fire goes out, and to realize Nibbana means that all the craving is gone. In fact, all defilements have ceased, so it's the end of greed, hatred, and delusion entirely, irrevocably, without any remainder. And that one can realize the true nature of reality, which is to see that everything is impermanent, and, and when we attach or identify with things that are impermanent, there's dukkhas, another Pali word, right? <laughs> Suffering. Or dissatisfaction. And the, the author of these questions might know all of this, but we just kind of try to be a little bit complete here. Hopefully. <laughs> so, so this experience, and it is an experience, changes a person forever. And part of the, the realization is that we're not who we think we are. So what does it mean to be a person? Yes, there's a living being, a human being. But it's also the case that one recognizes that that's a process or a collection of processes. It's, it's not an entity that continues 
on is something, it's a collection of conditions that are supported by some things, that conditions that will keep changing. So it's easy to see really with the body that the body is not going to last. It's going to come, it's going to um, come to an end, deteriorate, fall apart. And therefore, you know, it's not uh, wise to depend upon it uh, for our happiness, right? But when we see that everything, not just in this world, but in any world, um, is also impermanent in that way, and not self, then there is no more clinging to anything. And it's not something that is just true in the moment. It's clearly understood and can't be otherwise. It doesn't. You don't go back to not knowing that, or you don't suddenly have greed arise, hatred or delusion or confusion. It's done. So when. Um, I, absolutely, it's true that modern humans can experience this and do and have. And um, when someone has gotten to that stage, they don't go around saying, I'm an Arahant. It's kind of a ridiculous thing to say when you're not a self. <laughs> There's no ego in that at all. It's a really a radical uh, place, space. You know, it's not it's not a temporary sort of knowing, and it's a radical change in the way we understand in our understanding. So when the Buddha talked about his own experience of enlightenment, you you may you all may know, but you know, he talked about the things that he experienced in that night. And it involved seeing all of the, the changing process over eons of what you might refer to as his karmic stream or his, that, that continuing process of change that, you know, at that point in time was who he was, if you will. He saw these lifetimes. And, and he said he saw, he knew directly, because of the depth of his meditation, his direct experience through insight, what his name was, you know, what his family was, his clan, his, the food he ate, um, his experience of pleasure and pain, the duration of his life, how he died, you know, all these details. And you might wonder, how is it possible? It takes some depth of meditation experience and maybe some direct seeing of reality, some aspect of reality anyway, maybe before we can appreciate that this is possible, that he could have witnessed that. And 
And then also seeing how other people would go from lifetime to lifetime and how the actions that they had, body, speech, and mind, affected how they would get reborn later, what the conditions were that would come later. And he saw enough, he saw that happening with so many different living beings that he could really understand how action works, how um, what we do, say, think, results in the process going in a certain way, in a way that causes different circumstances to arise. So being reborn in a heaven realm or hell realm or somewhere in between. Now, the Buddha never asked anybody to believe that based on his reporting of it. But I find it really interesting that he wasn't making up some philosophy. He was really reporting on his direct experience. And it's very um, much a confidence. It builds my confidence and the confidence other people have in the Buddha by knowing people who have this kind of experience and seeing how they live their lives. And also by perhaps having some kinds of experiences oneself that the Buddha described as part of the path. And then also being able to delve deep into the suttas that are the, you know, the record of the Buddha's teachings and see how consistent they are, how well, well they fit together, and how they may be ex they explain some of the things we experience in meditation or in life. And then, you know, it adds a great deal of confidence to know scholars who study not just the Pali Suttas, but also the Chinese Agamas and other sources that were stemming from the time of the Buddha, but going in very vastly different directions on the planet and being preserved so well that 2,000 years later or more, you compare them and they're virtually the same. That's pretty impressive. So as I said, the Buddha was not one to try to convince us of any of this, but said, you know, do the practice and see it for yourself. And I certainly have been incredibly inspired and amazed by some of the practitioners, um, the ones that I happen to have had contact with and time with or have been in Thailand. And I'm sure there are those in other places too. And it, when you spend time with people who, I mean, it's like I said, they're not saying, I'm an Aram. <laughs> but they're living in such a way and they're teaching in such a way that it's in, that you, you, can, you can get that what they're teaching is, as the Buddha said, hard to see, not possible to know through mere reasoning. It's really impressive and and the way they live in the world is with such a sense of generosity and compassion 
you totally get that they don't need anything for themselves. There is no self to to try to gain something. So sometimes we see people who do claim that they are aunts, maybe they'll write books about it or whatever. And if you know the Buddhist teachings or you get a sense of how people actually do arrive at such a profound level of understanding and awakening that is so far from what is going to be described by someone who takes such a position. It's clear that they're not, they don't understand yet what this means and the profundity of it. So um, when you spend time with people who are quite advanced on the path, then you really do gain the confidence that this is something you can do too. And that it's a process of, of practice and development. And then, you know, it's, it's also, like I said, you see the, the indications of progress in your own practice. And I know that's true of many of you here too. So yeah, I do personally aspire to attain Nibbana. The Buddha encouraged it um, for all of us, and he said, "Don't go, you know, don't be satisfied with merely developing virtue or developing concentration, but you know, keep going until you really do find yourself absolutely free from all suffering." free from all defilements, and you know it. It's, this is not something that can happen when you don't realize it, or that you're not sure, or, you know, you know, one day you're suddenly angry about something. Um, after you feel like you've attained this, then it's, it's, not, it's not the case that you've actually seen it yet. Um, how long it takes, you know, I think this question becomes pretty irrelevant as we make progress on the path because the benefits are so beautiful as you go along. Life changes and you know it's it's like you, you know you're going in the right direction and and whatever time it might take gives you time to do good in the world or in lifetime after lifetime maybe it really doesn't matter um, in some sense and when we're when we're thinking like oh I want to you know what it would be nice to not have to go through another lifetime but the more the more we um, experience, levels of awakening, the less it matters when, when that final step happens. The transformations are, are pretty clearly laid out by the Buddha. There are four levels of awakening, and the first is stream entry, which uh, means that uh, one really fully gets 
that there is no way that any of these khandas, the collection of things that we usually think of as me and mine, are actually a self. That there's no abiding self or soul that keeps going from lifetime to lifetime. Basically, the ego takes a huge hit. (laughs) And we're much happier, really happy. When stream entry occurs, there's a kind of happiness that's, um, you know, kind of almost irrepressible. I mean, it's not like, um, I don't know what to say. Yeah, so the, the, the sense of self is so reduced uh, that there's a lot more relief. And also, you know, there, there's three fetters that drop this belief that the body or any of the other condos could be self. And also that there's, there's no kind of idea that if I just do the right things, if I just, you know, do the right rituals or uh, whatever, that that's going to bring enlightenment. So that is kind of the way a lot of religious thinking is based, you know, if I say the right words and I profess the right beliefs or I, you know, um, do the right practices, then it's going to happen. Then, then, then I'm okay. And you realize that it's, that's not what it's about. I mean, certainly, it's imperative to keep precepts, and when one gets to that um, stream entry experience, then there's kind of a very strong allergy to breaking precepts. You don't want to harm anything. You don't want to take anything that isn't offered to you, you know, and on and on. You know, it's like there's... there's um, a deep understanding of the importance of morality and virtue. Um, And then there's this unshakable faith in the Buddha and the Dhamma and the Sangha. So there's there's already an understanding at that point of, of, it's more than an understanding, it's not intellectual, it's like a deep awareness of the the truth the truth of the Dhamma the um, the incredible um, the the unshakable confidence in the Buddha and in in what he had taught and in the way that he lived and his um, the reality of him as a as a historical being, but also the the Buddha, the awakened mind. That 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 is a reality, and it's it's um, that is our potential. Excuse me. And also the thank you.
and the confidence that there are enlightened beings at these levels, and and you see um, the truth of that. So this confidence comes. The Buddha also said that you gain a confidence in the training. And it's not really just like monastic training or something. It's much, it's much bigger than that. It's it's like when we open our our mind, our heart to developing on the path. There is this. The Dhamma meets us in a way that supports us in this in the progress if you will, and you can have, you develop a certain confidence in that, that there, that we have what what we need in order to continue to, to awaken. And then once one is, there, and stream entry is an experience that happens, it's something, the Buddha said, you know when it happened and you'll never forget when and where you were and how it happened. And, you know, sometimes it's described in the suttas as, you know, realizing that everything that arises ceases. And it's like that profound um, understanding of impermanence and how that alters the whole way you look at life and the way you respond to it. And then once that happens, you're, st- you're still not free from all the defilements, so you keep going, and your interest is in what's next, what do I do now to wake up further? And then, you know, that would be considered practicing for one's returning. And greed, hatred, and delusion get less and less and less and less, but the Buddha doesn't say something profound happens at that point. You just see the the diminishing of craving and anger, desire, resentment, and confusion. But the next kind of big shift is non-returning. So the idea in terms of rebirth is that if you're at stream entry, there are some small number of lifetimes that you'll have to live further to, to finish the work. And if you um, get to once returning, then you've got one more lifetime to finish the work. Non-returning is you go to a very um, elevated help, heaven realm, and that's where you finish finish off the rest of greed and hatred. And arahantship is the end of delusion. And the end of even the this most subtle sense of existing, of existence. The desire of existence is gone. So intellectually this can sound kind of scary or weird or out there. But it's not something you come to know through the intellect. You can't reason your way to it. It's something that is experienced and, like I said, you can you can get a lot of um, 
appreciation for it by spending time with people who have gotten there. If you want to think of it that way. Okay, so like I said, no pressure believing any of that. Try it out. Learn about it, try it out. Um, Spend some time in places where people are um, known to be Arahants. <coughs> Ajahn Gunhau said to us, if you want to be an Arahant, you have to spend time with Arahants. <laughs> and I said, yeah, Lumpur, that's why I'm here. <laughs> and then everybody laughs like that because you're not supposed to say stuff like that. <laughs> Um, this question is about the Buddha as a teacher and as a human being so you really in the suttas you see both you see the Buddha as a human being you know um, Siddhartha Gautama and, and it's pretty inspiring to recognize that a human being can do this and one time I, I, I visited Bogaya once, and while I was there, there was a monk um, that I met who's a um, <laughs> really wonderful monk, and he said he loves Bogaya, you know, where the Buddha got enlightened because a human being was here, and, and this is what happened, you know, this is. And it, and it can be very inspiring to recognize that we're on this path and we're headed for this and we may or may not have um, much sort of personal evidence yet. But the Buddha lays out the process pretty clearly and we can see that. We can begin to see that unfolding in ourselves. So he was a human being and he... Um, you know, had a, you know, the conditions of his life and when he saw um, what the situation really is, that we're all, you know, uh, stuck in this very awkward position of living in a world where everything's constantly changing and we don't have control over much of any of it. And we're going to get old if we last that long and sick and we're going to die. And then what? And, you know, it's like, how do you find the solution to that? And that's what he set out to do. And he did. Um, and, you know, we can see him change his mind sometimes. Like, you know, you know monks are making a lot of noise and... and um, because a bunch of new monks came into the monastery and they're all greeting each other and making a lot of noise and he's like, ugh, I'm leaving. <laughs> I'm just going to go off by myself. <laughs> or he sends them to leave. This happens in a couple different places and then he later thinks, well, there are some new monks there and if I'm not around, maybe they're not going to, you know, maybe they won't keep it up and maybe they'll get discouraged. So he goes and finds them. You know, and it's like, huh, you know, you think about, we think, oh, well, our hardship, that's going to mean perfection, right? You can always, 
um, say the right things, do the right things. There's not going to be any, any like changing your mind. But it's not quite that way. It's like there's no greed, hatred, and delusion. But there's, it's not like perfection. Like we would think of, when they talk about the perfection of the Buddha, it's, um, it's, it's about the, the attachment. It's about the clinging. It's about the selfing. And um, you start to get a more of a nuanced idea as you study more of the suttas and get, get a deeper sense. So some people that I've heard for years are arahants, and you see how they've lived their life, which is amazing. And, and yet, on a social level, they might not, you know, understand something or know something, and that's totally, you know, that's a worldly aspect, and it's, it's, there's no greed, hatred, or delusion there, but it's a you know, certain condition. So how do we feel like we can follow um, the Buddha or a teacher? And it really takes um, personal investigation. You know, there's, there's um, you know, how can I follow this human being? Um, it's by investigating them to see if they would do anything out of greed, hatred, or delusion that would lead somebody the wrong way. What is the wrong way? The wrong way is to more suffering and, and um, less peace, to something that's immoral, unvirtuous, to something that causes harm to other people. Um, you know, and, and not... Um, you know, or is there is there something that this person would would do to lead people the wrong way out of out of hatred? Those kinds of things. So, yeah, I I think that mainly just inviting that um, investigation in ourselves. What do you know? What do you know for sure? What do you know that you can trust? I mean, I really trust the precepts through my own experience of having broken them and keeping them. <laughs> you know, and you might have that confidence too. And then, you know, sort of see what you can, can observe and know for yourself. And in your meditation, let the mind relax. Let the mind... Um, become really still and see what arises and see what it is like to know something directly yourself that doesn't come through logic. Any questions or comments? Complaints are fine too. What do you think? So I think we'll have a relatively short guided meditation and then you're free to continue to sit or do walking meditation if, if you feel like walking a little in the rain, I guess, or whatever is suitable and, and helpful to your practice this afternoon.
So always when you start to meditate, check in on the body. And make sure that it's comfortable enough. So that you can sit for some period of time or whatever position you're in if you're standing, lying down. Since the Buddha said we can meditate sitting, standing, walking, or lying down, we can really meditate anytime. And he said the body should be erect. If you're lying down, if you bend your knees, then the spine straightens. And it gives the same effect as sitting on a cushion or a bench or the edge of a chair or on a chair that holds you upright enough that you're not slouching. Because we want the energy to flow freely through the body, unimpeded by being out of alignment. When you feel solid and comfortable and you don't have to work, the muscles don't have to work hard to hold yourself up, then you can really start to turn your attention inwards. And you may have a, a, a favorite meditation object that you find is really effective for you. And I recommend that you use that. For me, it's the mindfulness of breathing. So I turn my attention to the breath, and I'm aware that I'm breathing in, and aware that I'm breathing out. And because the body is relaxed, There's this sense of the energy that comes in with the in-breath. And I can actually feel it or imagine it flowing through my whole body. It's perfectly fine to use your imagination for this because imagination actually leads or guides energy. Breathe in, and the Thais would call it the breath energy enters the body, and you can have this sense that it's perhaps you may have the sense that it's flowing even out to the tips of your fingers or the ends of your toes. Filling the body. And on the out-breath, we can relax a bit more and let go.
perhaps imagine the releasing of toxins or debris or waste. I mean, it is true in the physical sense of breathing, exchanging oxygen for carbon dioxide. invigorating, enlivening, and keeping the body alive, keeping us alive. We can't last long without breathing. So we relax and feel our awareness is you know, surrounding our whole body then we can actually be quite grounded the mind can be inclining towards stillness We can notice along with our in-breath and our out-breath what the activity of the mind is, what the state of the mind is. If it's got any agitation or dullness. If there's some strong pull to wanting something or wanting to get rid of something, then we can deal with that directly. Like you want this person to stop talking or you really want to go to sleep or something, you can really look at that directly. When we're silent and retreat, lots of different kinds of things can come into the mind. Different feelings can rise. And if we use each change in our body and mind as an opportunity to just observe from a bit of a distance with mindfulness and clear comprehension, then we're practicing we're making progress in recognizing that none of this is me or mine. We invite the mind to become calm and at ease. And we start to notice pleasant feeling, whether there is pleasant feeling arising in the body, joy or happiness. 
pleasant feeling, pleasant thoughts gladdening the mind. If you've experienced things or developed an appreciation of the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, then bringing those things to mind can really help the mind become stable, positive. uplifted. And from this place of lifting up the mind, we can begin to open the heart further to loving-kindness. And the happiness in the mind is easily enhanced or increased to become a happiness that flows through and around the whole body and mind. with a kind of unconditional kindness and love for oneself and for everyone. felt sense of this feeling of warmth feeling of openness kindness, peace calm glow glowing Still use your breathing as an anchor, as the the grounding force that helps to fuel this expansion of this happy, loving feeling. (laughs) 
Notice what the mind thrives on at this point that helps it to be happy, calm, peaceful, loving, expansive. this feeling of metta and the encouragement for it to expand, this can take us into what some would call metta jhana. A pervasive goodwill. Now from here, I suggest you do whatever feels like it will be of benefit to you. To continue to sit and maybe expand upon what you're already experiencing or shifting to a different posture and location, whatever is suitable quietly and gently. And really take this opportunity this afternoon to apply the Dhamma to whatever arises in the mind, whatever arises in your experience. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.